0: Book 3, Chapter 1, of The Life of John Ruskin, by W.G. Collingwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of John Ruskin, by W.G. Collingwood. Book 3, Hermit and Heretic, 1860-1870. to Chapter 1 unto this last 1860 to 1861 recording by graham arrowsmith at forty years of age ruskin finished modern painters from that time art was sometimes his text rarely his theme he used it as the opportunity the vehicle so to say for teachings of wider range and deeper import teachings about life as a whole conclusions in ethics and economics and religion to which he sought to lead others as he was led by the way of art during the time when he was preaching his later doctrines he wished to suppress the interfering evidences of the earlier he let his works on art run out of print not for the benefit of second-hand booksellers but in the hope that he could fix his audience upon the burden of his prophecy for the time being but the youthful works were still read High prices were paid for them, or they were smuggled in from America. And when the Epoch of Fours had passed, he agreed to the reprinting of all that early material. He called it obsolete and trivial. Others find it interestingly biographical, perhaps even classical. This year then, 1860, the year of the Italian Kingdom, of Garibaldi, and of the beginning of the American War, marks his turning point from the early work summed up in the old selections to the later work until he was forty mr ruskin was a writer on art after that his art was secondary to ethics until he was forty he was a believer in english protestantism afterwards he could not reconcile current beliefs with the facts of life as he saw them and had to reconstruct his creed from the foundations Until he was 40 he was a philanthropist working heartily with others in a definite cause and hoping for the amendment of wrongs without a social upheaval. Even in the beginning of 1860, in his evidence before the House of Commons Select Committee on Public Institutions, he was ready with plans for amusing and instructing the labouring classes and noting in them a thirsty desire for improvement. But while his readiness to make any personal sacrifice in the way of social and philanthropic experiment and his interest in the question were increasing, he became less and less sanguine about the value of such efforts as the working men's college and less and less ready to cooperate with others in their schemes. He began to see that no tinkering at social breakages was really worth while; that far more extensive repairs were needed to make the old ship seaworthy. So he set himself, by himself, to sketch the plans for the repairs. Naturally sociable and accustomed to the friendly give and take of a wide acquaintance, he withdrew from the busy world into a busier solitude. During the next few years he lived much alone among the Alps or at home, thinking out the problem, sometimes feeling, far more acutely than was good for clear thought, the burden of the mission that was laid upon him. In March 1863, he wrote from his retreat at Mornex to Norton. The loneliness is very great, and the peace in which I am at present is only as if I had buried myself in a tuft of grass on a battlefield wet with blood. For the cry of the earth about me is in my ears continually, if I do not lay my head to the very ground. And a few months later, I am still very unwell, and tormented between the longing for rest and lovely life and the sense of this terrific call of human crime for resistance and of human misery for help though it seems to me as the voice of a river of blood which can but sweep me down in the midst of its black clots helpless sentences like these passages here and there in the last volume of modern painters and still more certain passages omitted from that volume show that about eighteen sixty something of a cloud had been settling over him. A sense of the evil of the world, a horror of great darkness. In his early years, his intense emotion and vivid imagination had enabled him to read into pictures of Tintoret or Turner, into scenes of nature and sayings of great books, a meaning or a moral which he so vividly communicated to the reader as to make it thenceforward part and parcel of the subject, however it came there to begin with it is useless to wonder whether turner for instance consciously meant what ruskin found in his works a great painter does not paint without thought and such thought is apt to show itself whether he will or no but it needs imaginative sympathy to detect and describe the thought and when that sympathy was given to suffering to widespread misery to crying wrongs joined also with an intense passion for justice which had already shown itself in the defence of slighted genius and neglected art and to the celtic temperament of some high-strung seer and trance prophesying bard it was no wonder that ruskin became like one of the hermits of old who retreated from the world to return upon it with stormy messages of awakening and flashes of truth more impressive more illuminating than the logic of schoolmen and the statecraft of the wise And then he began to take up an attitude of antagonism to the world. He who had been the kindly helper and minister of delightful art. He began to call upon those who had ears to hear, to come out and be separate from the ease and hypocrisy of Vanity Fair. Its respectabilities, its orthodoxies, he could no longer abide. Orthodox religion, orthodox morals and politics, orthodox art and science alike he rejected and was rejected by each of them as a brawler, a babbler, a fanatic, a heretic. And even when kindly Oxford gave him a quasi-academical position, it did not bring him, as it brings many a heretic, back to the fold. In this period of storm and stress he stood alone. The old friends of his youth were one by one passing away, if not from intercourse, still from full sympathy with him in his new mood. His parents were no longer the guides and companions they had been. They did not understand the business he was about, and so he was left to new associates, for he could not live without someone to love. That was the nature of the man, however lonely in his work and wanderings. The new friends of this period were, at first, Americans. As the chief new friends of his latest period, the Alexanders were American too. Charles Eliot Norton... After being introduced to him in London in 1855, met him again by accident on the Lake of Geneva. The story is prettily told in *Pretorita*. Ruskin adds, Norton saw all my weaknesses, measured all my narrownesses, and from the first took serenely, and as it seemed of necessity, a kind of paternal authority over me, and a right of guidance. I was entirely conscious of his rectorial power, and affectionately submissive to it, so that he might have done anything with me but for the unhappy difference in our innate and unchangeable political faiths. So, after all, he stood alone. Another friend about this time was Mrs H. Beecher Stowe, to whom he wrote on June eighteenth, 1860, from Geneva. It takes a great deal when I am at Geneva, to make me wish myself anywhere else, and of all places else in London. Nevertheless, I very heartily wish at this moment that I were looking out on the Norwood Hills and were expecting you and the children to breakfast tomorrow. I had very serious thoughts when I received your note of running home, but I expected that very day an American friend, Mr. Stillman, who I thought would miss me more here than you in London, so I stayed. What a dreadful thing it is that people should have to go to America again after coming to Europe. It seems to me an inversion of the order of nature. I think America is a sort of united states of probation out of which all wise people, being once delivered and having obtained entrance into this better world, should never be expected to return. Sentence irredeemably ungrammatical, particularly when they have been making themselves cruelly pleasant to friends here. My friend Norton, whom I first met on this very blue lake water, had no business to go back to Boston again, any more than you. So you have been seeing the Pope and all his Easter performances. I congratulate you, for I suppose it is something like positively the last appearance on any stage. What was the use of thinking about him? You should have had your own thoughts about what was to come after him. I don't mean that Roman Catholicism will die out so quickly it will last pretty nearly as long as protestantism which keeps it up but i wonder what is to come next that is the main question just now for everybody w j stillman had been a correspondent about eighteen fifty one involved in mystical speculations partly growing out of the second volume of modern painters as he said of himself in an article on john ruskin in the century magazine january eighteen eighty eight with him Ruskin spent July and August of eighteen sixty at Shimony. He did but little drawing, and in the few sketches that remain of that summer there is evidence that his mind was far away from its old love of mountains and of streamlets. His lonely walks in the pine woods of the Arveron were given to meditation on a great problem which had been set, as it seemed, for him to solve, ever since he had written that chapter on the nature of Gothic. Now at last, in the solitude of the Alps, he could grapple with the questions he had raised, and the outcome of the struggle was unto this last. The year before, from Toon and Bonville and Lausanne, August and September 1859, he had written letters to E.S. Dallas, suggested by the strikes in the London building trade. In these he appeared to have sketched the outline of a new conception of social science, which he was now elaborating with more attempt at system and brevity than he had been accustomed to use. These new papers, painfully thought out and carefully set down in his room at the Hotel de L'Union, he used, as long before he read his daily chapter to the breakfast party at Hernhill Hill, to read to Stillman, and he sent them to the Cornhill magazine, started the year before by Smith and Elder. Ruskin had already contributed to a paper on Sir Joshua and Holbein, a stray chapter from Volume 5, Modern Painters. His reputation as a writer and philanthropist, together with the friendliness of editor and publisher, secured the insertion of the first three, from August to October. The editor then wrote to say that they were so unanimously condemned and disliked that, with all apologies, he could only admit one more. The series was brought hastily to a conclusion in November, and the author... Beaten back as he had never been beaten before, dropped the subject and sulked, so he called it all the winter. It is pleasant to notice that neither Thackeray, the editor nor Smith, the publisher, quarrelled with the author who had lain them open to the censure of their public, nor he with them on December the twenty first he wrote to Thackeray in answer apparently to a letter about lecturing for a charitable purpose, and continued the mode in which you direct your charity puts me in mind of a matter that has lain long on my mind though i never have had the time or face to talk to you of it in somebody's drawing-room ages ago you were speaking accidentally of monsieur de marvet i expressed my great obligation to him on which you said that i could prove my gratitude if i chose to his widow which choice i then not accepting have ever since remembered the circumstances one peculiarly likely to add so far as it went to the general impression on your mind of the hollowness of people's sayings and hardness of their hearts the fact is i give what i give almost in an opposite way to yours i think there are many people who will relieve hopeless distress for one who will help at a hopeful pinch and when i have the choice i nearly always give where i think the money will be fruitful rather than merely helpful i would lecture for a school when i would not for a distressed author and would have helped de Marais to perfect his invention, but not, unless I had no other object, his widow, after he was gone. In a word, I like to prop the falling more than to feed the fallen. The winter passed without any great undertaking. G. F. Watts proposed to add Ruskin's portrait to his gallery of celebrities, but he was in no mood to sit. Rossetti did, however, sketch him this year. In March, he presented eighty three Turner drawings to Oxford and twenty five to Cambridge. The address of thanks with the great seal of Oxford University is dated March the twenty third, eighteen sixty one. The catalogue of the Cambridge collection is dated May the twenty eighth. On April the second, he addressed the St. George's Mission Working Men's Institute, and shortly afterwards, though at this time in a much enfeebled state of health, gave a lecture before a most brilliant audience, as the London Review reported at the Royal Institution, April 19th, 1861. Carlyle wrote to his brother John, Friday last I was persuaded, in fact had inwardly compelled myself, as it were, to a lecture of Ruskin's at the institution, Albemarle Street, lecture on tree leaves as psychological, pictorial, moral, symbolical objects. A crammed house, but tolerable even to me in the gallery. The lecture was thought to break down, and indeed it quite did as a lecture, but only did from Embarras de Richesse, a rare case. Ruskin did blow asunder, as by gunpowder explosions, his leaf notions, which were manifold, curious, genial. And in fact, I do not recollect to have heard in that place any nearest thing I liked so well as this chaotic one. Papers on illuminated manuscripts, read before the Society of Antiquaries on june sixth, and on the preservation of ancient buildings, read to the Ecclesiological Society a fortnight later, show that old interests were not wholly forgotten, even in the stress of new pursuits by this man of many sided activity. During may eighteen sixty one he paid a visit to the schoolgirls at Winnington. In June and July he took a holiday at Boulogne with the fisherfolk. In August he went to Ireland as guest of the Latouches of Harristown, Cant Kildare, and in September he returned to the Alps, spending the rest of the year at Bonneville and Lucerne. End of Book Three, Chapter One, Recording by Graham Arrowsmith.